This podcast is produced in stereo and you are going to get more of the effect if you beautiful listener listen to this podcast with headphones. Don't forget to smash them five stars on this podcast. Welcome to Under the Stairs. Hey, hello. A podcast that is brimming with gruesome true crime events. Oh my god. Paranormal encounters and more weird, wonderful and bizarre things that the world will bring. Yo and welcome back to Wonder the Stairs. I thank you for joining me. In fact, you know what? I love you guys. I appreciate everybody that's listening and supporting so far. It's been absolutely amazing. So, welcome aboard. Today's show is completely packed with absolute awesome darkness. And that is really the only way that happens on this show. Yes, we talk about a lot of dark things. In fact, in a second, we'll be looking at five ways that people have died in a really bizarre and strange way. And the story today is all about the murders of the Lily Lid family in Greene County, Tennessee. Now, if you don't know this story, if you don't know this story, it is quite tragic, sad and disturbing and quite frankly, extremely interesting, that does actually have a positive spin on it. Yeah, it does, in a weird way. So, let's do this, me and you, let's get in to five ways. Number one, on April 23rd, 2002, Witnesses told police that Roderick de la Cruz of Calucan City in the Philippines shook uncontrollably as electric current ripped through his body after he had bragged that he had a way with electricity like no other. To prove that he had control of electricity, oh here we go Roderick, here we go. Roderick Touched a live wire. I wonder where this is going to go. Roderick, who sustained third degree burns in most parts of his body, was rushed to hospital but died before reaching Dr. Jose Rodriguez Memorial Hospital. My days. What a silly thing to do. I mean, was the drugs involved in this one or... Some kind of strange mental illness, maybe. Number 2 On March 30th, 1997 Vichai Thong from Thailand was feeding the family's four peacocks when one clawed at his head. He soon began suffering headaches and fell into a coma. A hospital scan showed a blood clot on the brain due to the peacock scratch. Unfortunately, he died the next day. Imagine that. 
just feeding your peacocks in a friendly manner to be clawed in the head to then gain a blood clot and die um tragedic tragedy um tragedy struck by peacocks no please no Number three, there are many people who own snakes as pets. Not me though, you would not catch me with a pet snake. However, unlike Robert Paulson from Florida, most people don't own an 11 foot pet python. Oh dear. In 1999, Robert had removed his pet from his cage to feed him. Where is this going to go? When the hungry snake bit him on the forehead. Robert was found dead in his apartment with his pet snake intertwined around and suffocated his body. What a way to die alone. What a dark place to be for Robert. Thinking he's being kind and feeding his beautiful 11 foot python only to be bitten and crushed and suffocated. Oh. Number four. Kenja Ureda worked at a plant in Tokyo that was operated by 50 industrial robots. On July the 4th in 1981, Kenjai failed to completely turn off a malfunctioning robot he was fixing. Due to his error, the broken robot pushed him into a grind keg machine with its hydraulic arm. Kenjai is known as one of the first people to ever be killed by a robot. And you know what, people? I don't think he'll be the last. He won't be the last. Not with all these weird sex robots appearing around the world. Yeah, that's dangerous. And number five. On July the 2nd, 1903, Ed Dalahanty, a Hall of Fame baseball player, for the Philadelphia Phillies was kicked off a train by the conductor for being drunk and violent. After Ed got kicked off a train, he drunkenly wandered across a bridge in New York and eventually he fell off the bridge into the river. So far, it's not been a good night here, but unfortunately, that river led him to Niagara Falls. Instant death if you've fallen off that, my people. Wow. You know what? I know it sounds harsh and it might sound strange, but at least that guy had some hell of a ride, maybe.
Five Ways always comes out on top with some absolutely crazy, weird and bizarre ways that people have died on this beautiful planet Earth. It just gets more and more weird and bizarre. Now, my friends, it's time we dropped in today's story. Now, gear yourselves up for this one. Buckle yourselves in. Get ready, because along with this story also comes an autopsy report, which is pretty damn gruesome. And that is exactly what you are here for. Enjoy. The Lillilid murders took place in Greene County, Tennessee. Three members of Lillilid family were killed on April 6th, 1997. Vidar Lillilid, age 34, Delphina Lillilid, age 28, their daughter Tabita, who was six, and their son Peter, who was only age two. They were shot on a deserted rural road near Baileyton after a carjacking by a group of youths. Six young people from Kentucky, including two minors, were convicted of felony murder for three deaths, each receiving three life sentences and an additional sentence of 25 years for attempting to murder Peter who luckily in all this craziness survived. So, let's dive a bit deeper into this one. Let's go back to April 6th, 1997, in Greene County, Tennessee. We arrive in Greene County, Tennessee, April the 6th in 1997. 34-year-old Vidar Lillilid approached two teenage girls, 18-year-old Natasha Cornett and 17-year-old Karen Howell. They were at a rest stop and he began to speak with them about his religious views as he was a Joseph witness. Now, remember this part, because it will become quite crucial later on. Vidar had stopped so that his wife could take a break and take their daughter to the restroom. And he could walk their son. He was feeling, as most kids would be after a long car journey, just a little bit cranky. He walked her around to try and calm him down. Vidar had the toddler in his arms as he was talking with these two girls about his religious views. Two more individuals arrived. 20-year-old Joseph Reisner and 14-year-old 
Jason Bryant. Vidor soon realised there had been some kind of mistake, as Reisner showed him a gun and said, I hate to do you this way, but we are going to have to take you with us in your van. As Reisner directed Vidor back to his family van, Vidor begged the group to leave his family at the rest stop and just take his wallet, keys and the van, but Reisner refused forced Vidar behind the wheel and sat in the passenger seat holding a gun on the father and husband while he drove. In the back of the van were Bryant, Howell and Cornet, along with Vidar's family. 28-year-old Delphina, 6-year-old Tabita and 2-year-old Peter. Two more teens, 19-year-old Edward Mullins and 18-year-old Crystal Sturgill, followed in Reisner's car. In attempts to keep the children calm, Delphina began to sing to them, but Brian ordered her to stop. Reisner forced Vidar to drive to the interstate and then take the next exchange that led into a small road called Payne Hollow Lane, near Greenville. He was instructed to turn around on a gravelled road. Once the van was in a secluded spot along the road, the Lillilid family were ordered out of the van and lined up along a ditch. Now the accounts of what happened next really did vary widely, from one killer to the next, but the older ones all seemed to point the finger at Bryant, claiming that they were still discussing whether they had let the family go when Bryant started shooting them. They claimed that when Bryant checked the bodies, he believed they were not dead. In his words, They are still fucking alive. He said that before shooting them again. The car driven by Mullins got stuck behind a muddy stump and couldn't be moved further. They removed any belongings from it and stripped off the license plates, leaving it with the headlights still on before fleeing the scene. The family were left dead and the group of murderers continued on their way towards New Orleans. Now somebody from a nearby house heard the gunshots. The sounds of what they claim children on a playground. Now they called 911 to report it. The police were sent out to investigate. They first saw the abandoned car, which still had its headlights on. And then they came across the horrific murder scene. It was around 8.20pm on April the 6th, 1997. Both Vidar and Delphina were dead, but the young daughter to Peter and Peter were still alive. 
So medical art was quickly beaconed at the scene and the children were transported for care while the police began their investigation into the murders and the attempted murders. Their search quickly led them to six young people from Pikeville, Kentucky. Now I have found an autopsy report on three of the bodies. Now only three of the bodies because Peter did survive this and we will get into how he did eventually but let's see what the forensic pathologist found for us. Now he testified that Vidar's body had six gunshot wounds. One to the right side of his head and five to his chest. The first shot entered his right eye, travelled through his temple and exited in the front of his right ear. While he could not be certain, it was Blake's opinion that this shot was fired from a 9mm handgun and would have caused a loss of consciousness. Vidar then fell to the ground on his back and he was shot three times in the upper right side of his chest. Delfina was shot eight times and all eight bullets were recovered. Six were a nine millimeter and two were a .25 caliber. The first shot from a 9mm, shattered a bone in her left arm. The second shot, also 9mm, shattered the femur in her left thigh. Blake testified that these shots would have not killed her, but would have caused severe pain, leaving her unable to stand. Delphina was shot an additional six times while on her back, with the first three shots striking her in the left side of her stomach. It was Dr. Blake's opinion that these shots were fired to form a triangular pattern, similar to the injuries inflicted on her husband. The three shots pierced her stomach leaving a four to five inch tear and travelled through her pancreas, spleen, left kidney and left adrenal gland. A final nine millimetre entry wound was located at the midsection of Delphina's abdomen just above her navel and the bullet was recovered from her spine. There was a .25 caliber gunshot wound under her left armpit where the bullet entered, coming to a stop in the skin on the back of her left shoulder. Another shot caused a wound to Delphina's left side and the bullet was recovered from the center of her liver. She also suffered abrasions on her right calf Delphina's wounds were not immediately fatal and she could have been conscious 
for as long as 25 minutes, including while her body was driven over by the van. Six-year-old Tabitha was shot once in the head with a small calibre weapon and the bully entered the left side of her skull, travelling downwards and exiting by her right ear. The wound caused immediate brain death. Hospitalised, she remained on life support until her uncle, who had been named her custodian, gave permission for several of her organs to be donated. Tabita was pronounced dead one day after the shooting. This is such a sad, tragic case and it's it's one that nobody's really heard of. I mean, I haven't heard about it until an awesome person in my Discord shared it with me. But let's just take this as a positive. Two-year-old Peter survived this absolute tragedy. So let's find out how this guy survived. So two-year-old Peter was shot twice with a small caliber weapon. One shot entered behind his right ear and exited near his right eye. A second gunshot penetrated his back and exited through his chest. Now he was transported by a livestock helicopter to the paediatric intensive care unit at the University of Tennessee Memorial Hospital in Knoxville. This is where he was listed in a critical condition. He required vigorous resuscitations having sustained a bruising to his right lung with some residual bleeding in the right chest cavity. Doctors removed the damaged eye 11 days after the shooting. He remained in the hospital 17 days before being transferred to a Knoxville Rehabilitation Centre. It's such an amazing thing that this kid survived such an absolutely tragic event. And from that tragedy, this guy has returned from Sweden where he spent a lot of time with his family. He's returned to the USA, he's married, he's got a job and things are going well, as best as they can be in the circumstances. And he does state that he doesn't really have a lot of memory. You can search up on YouTube. He's done an interview which is called 25 Years On. So go over there and take a look at that and it's absolutely breathtaking what he goes through. Now, let's carry on and let's find out how these mother truckers got caught. Not long after they started their trip to New Orleans, they realised that Reisner's car was not fit for the long drive. It was too small and didn't run well. Armed with a 9mm and a 25 caliber pistol and some stolen cash from their family homes, they discussed stealing a car from a parking lot or a dealership, but ended up at a rest area and saw an opportunity to swipe one from there instead. 
while examining the movements of the lily lids before their death. Police discovered eyewitnesses who placed their killers with them at the rest stop and a picnic area alongside Interstate 81 outside of Baileyton in Greene County, Tennessee, who were returning from a religious convention and some were seen leaving with the Lillilids in their van. At the same time, the abandoned car was traced back to Reisner's and the pieces began to fall into place. Knowing they would have likely been discovered, the killers were paranoid about the stolen van. They stopped to eat at a Waffle House on their way through Georgia, but were spooked when a group of police officers arrived. They left and decided that instead of going to New Orleans, it might be best if they drove towards Mexico instead. Their attempt to cross the Mexican border was denied because they lacked the proper forms of identification. They were turned around to be checked by the American Border Patrol. The group claimed that they were lost, but officers ordered the rest of the group out of the van to conduct a search. Instead, they found a knife with a photo album belonging to the Lillilids, along with some small trophies they had kept from the murders. Only two days after killing Lillilids, they were taken to Arizona jail for processing. During the sentencing hearing, Natasha Cornett claimed that her first attorney had coached her to say she was the daughter of Satan. District Attorney Berkeley Bell claimed that he thought that a cult angle was a distraction, even though he utilised the cult experts during an investigation and repeatedly referred to an occult angle in interviews. Still, he expressed relief when Cornett's first attorney was replaced by the judge. Although many references were made by witnesses and prosecutors at the trial to rumours saying that the six were involved in a satanic cult, no evidence was presented to support these claims. Of the six involved in the murders, only one could be proven to be the shooter. Still, D.A. Bal has stated in interviews that he felt justice wouldn't be served until all of them were convicted. To ensure they all paid for the horrible crime they all took part in, he offered a plea bargain. In return for all six pleading guilty to first-degree murder, he would take the death penalty off the table. The plea bargain came with the stipulation that all six had to agree with a short period of time or the deal would be revoked for everybody. All six defendants signed. 
and in March 1998, all six defendants were convicted of felony murder and received three life sentences with no possibility of parole for each victim who died. An additional 25 year sentence for the attempted murder of young Peter. Rather than trying to determine the portion of blame each had in the killings, the judge applied the same aggravated circumstances for all. Though testimony from the other defendants was that Jason Bryant had fired all the shots, the fact that two different guns were used led the judge to believe there might have been another member of the group who had also fired shots. Jason Bryant admitted to Officer Deb McKay in Arizona that he had been one to shoot Vidar, but that testimony was not allowed as he has not been read his rights before the admission. He later changed the story to claim that Mullins and Reisner were the shooters. No one was ever conclusively named as a shooter, but the evidence seemed to be pointed towards it being Bryant and Reisner. And that, my freaks, is it for this episode. It's been an absolute honour talking you guys through such a traumatic case and also ways that these people of the world die in such a strange and bizarre way. Don't forget to smash them five stars on this podcast and share it with your freaky friends. And I'll see you next time under the stairs. <laughs>